Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. I was a preaching intern here, and I'm such an admirer of this church, and I'll never miss a chance to come back and be with you whenever I can. I was classmates with Zane uh, at Abilene Christian in the Bible department, and so he asked me to come and fill in for him this morning. That story that we just read together in Luke chapter 10 about Martha and Mary, I have to be honest with you. It's one of the stories in the Bible that really bothers me every time I read it. Maybe when we just, uh, just now read it, maybe it bothered you a little bit too. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute, but do you have any stories like that in the Bible where you wish things had turned out a little bit differently? It feels a little bit unfair. You wish you could just nudge Luke while he was editing the final draft and say, like, maybe word this a little differently. Like, maybe admit that Martha was doing some good work in there, you know, it's not all wrong. That's not what it says. And we have to, we have to grapple with that this morning. I want to give you another example, though, that may be relevant for what we're going to talk about today. Something else that bothered me in the Bible as a kid. The story in Genesis. When I was in first or second grade, learning the seven days of creation. Uh, God made the world in seven days, and the first time I learned what happened on day seven, it stopped me in my tracks. God, you remember the six days God creates things, and on day seven, he, he rests, right? He rests from all of his labor. And I was a little kid, and I looked around the room like, does no one else think this is weird? I learned my whole life, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, and now he's got to take a break? He's worn out? He just finished making the world, and he just did it with work. He just talked, and he made the world, and now he's tired. He needs to rest. The all-powerful creator of the universe, he spent one-seventh of his creative effort doing nothing, taking a break. As a kid, I never wanted to ask anybody about this. You know, I was a little first or second grader, and I wanted the Bible to be true. I wanted Jesus to be real. And so I was worried about drawing attention to this flaw that I had uncovered that nobody had ever noticed before until me. I felt like the Bible was this armload of ancient scrolls and manuscripts and papyrus that I had been given to protect. And if I didn't handle it with gloves, holding my breath from a safe distance, the whole Bible might just crumble into dust or burst into fluttering fragments of first century fables. You ever feel like that with some of your questions about the Bible? You read a story and you're like, that doesn't quite sit right, let me just keep reading. (laughs) I don't really want to kick the anthill. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. First, let me tell you how I resolved this cosmic contradiction that I uncovered in Genesis that God had to rest. I read Exodus. I kept reading. You turn the page and you keep reading, specifically the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Right? Exodus 20, God famously gives the freed Israelite slaves these Ten Commandments, and this is where we get the the explanation for why God had to rest on day seven. Commandment number four, God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. God says to work for six days and rest on the seventh day. And here's the explanation. He says, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So if you, like me, have ever wondered why God needed to rest on day seven, there it is right there. He admitted it and he explained it. He took a break to set an example for us to take a break. He took a break to foreshadow this core command to bless a day to teach us how to stop. You know, that might be the hardest one of the Ten Commandments for me on some days. Sure, I struggle with the other nine, idolatry and lust, 
anger and coveting. This is a hard list to keep, but I am terrible. Most days I don't even get off the starting blocks when it comes to Sabbath, to taking a break. Isn't it crazy when you think about it? God literally gives us a command to just stop and do nothing. Seems like it should be so easy. That's maybe the hardest one for me. I don't know about you. And I don't know what it was that was keeping the Israelites busy 3,000 years ago, but I feel like it would be hard to compete with America in the 2020s in terms of the number of things that are distracting us today and keeping us busy and competing for our attention. It's hard for me to remember the last day that went by without at some point involving a race between me and a clock. You feel like that? A day I never felt like I was running out of time. The whole world is in a hurry. I'm always late for something. I'm always trying to fit one more thing in. I'm always nagged by a fear I'm missing out, that I'm forgetting somebody or something. So I was excited when I found this book that I read by a pastor I really like named John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Okay, I highly recommend this book to you. Um, We have a picture of it here. Uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. What a title, right? I highly recommend this book. Uh, I got the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry on audiobook because I'm in too much of a hurry to read books. (laughs) If you need a gauge of how much I needed this book, I was halfway through reading it and I realized I was listening to the book on double speed so I could hurry up and get to the next book. Here's what I want to share with you that I learned from this book. In modern America, in Round Rock, Texas, in 2022, for a huge number of Christians, including me, the top obstacle to spiritual growth is busyness and hurry. In other words, you won't renounce your faith, but you might forget to include it in your schedule. This is me. Does this sound like you? You won't renounce your faith. You might forget to include it in your schedule. And this can turn church into a guilt trip. This can turn every time you pray, the prayer starts with, dear God, sorry, I haven't prayed in a while. This can make your faith turn into this ongoing source of shame and inadequacy. Corey Ten Boom said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And John Mark Comer in this book, he writes this, listen, both sin and busyness have the same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. And he goes on to say this, love, joy, and peace are at the heart of all Jesus is trying to grow in the soil of your life. And all three are incompatible with hurry. He's right. Imagine trying to feel the peace of God while you're running out the door late. Impossible. Imagine loving your neighbor as yourself while you're battling through stressful traffic on 35. It can't be done. Imagine meditating on the transcendent joy of God while you're grinding up against your work deadlines and racing the clock. Impossible. Do we ever see Jesus in a hurry? Where do we see him anxious or preoccupied? When do we find Jesus too busy to listen or lend a hand? It's unthinkable. And when Paul writes his famous definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, which a lot of us know, a lot of us have memorized, some of us might have it in calligraphy on our wall, a beautiful passage, how does he start when he defines love? Love is efficient. No. Love always finishes its to-do list. No. Love is patient. As all of us know, love will wait around for days or for decades for us to come to our senses and receive love. Whether that's love from our parents, our kids, our friends, our spouses, or God himself, love will wait forever. Love is patient. It's not in a hurry. And praise God for that grace. 
But like I said, I am in a hurry, okay? Most days I feel like I'm running out of time. Most days I feel like Martha felt in the story that we just read in Luke chapter 10. Let's read it again because it's short and we're not in a hurry. Luke chapter 10. Pull it up, pull it up on your phone. It'll be up here on the slides as well. And as we do, as we read through this again, try to play in your head, try to play on team Martha when we read through this. Try and ask yourself, why does she feel justified in saying what she says to Jesus, okay? Here we go. Luke 10, starting in verse 38. As they went on their way, Jesus and his disciples entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed them into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with all the serving that had to be done. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the serving by myself? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary's chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. How does Jesus' reply here that you're reading to Martha make you feel? It bothers me a little bit. Martha's serving everybody while Mary's doing nothing to help, and Jesus says Mary chose what's better. Martha has a million things on her to-do list, but they're good things. They're helpful things. And Jesus says, no, not a million, just one thing is needed, and it's not the serving that you're doing. It's one of those stories where Jesus doesn't act like I want him to act. Martha seems right. I want to pull Jesus aside and say, look, this really isn't fair. You should tell Mary to go help a little bit. She's sitting here. She's dodging all the work. Mary's listening to theory while Martha's putting it into practice, right? Mary's trying to absorb more of Jesus for herself. Martha's busy serving others on Jesus' behalf. Wouldn't it be more fair if Jesus said, that's a good point you raised there, Martha. Mary, look, I see you're trying to learn at my feet, and that's great, but those dishes aren't going to do themselves. The dinner won't cook itself. She needs your help. You can learn another time. Let's put those idle hands to work. But Luke just ends the story on this absolute, just this zinger one-liner from Jesus. And he gives us no resolution for Martha. That's how so many stories of Jesus end, just with him dropping a line, and we don't get to see the effect because we're supposed to look for the effect that it has on us. That's how the story ends, but let's back up and look at how the story starts. In your Bible or there on your phone, turn back a page or scroll up a little bit to the story that comes in Luke chapter 10, right before the story of Mary and Martha, the section right before this that Luke gives us in Luke 10. The story immediately before this is one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told, the Good Samaritan. And we all know the story. A man gets beaten up and robbed and left on the side of the road. He needs help. Two people pass him by and they ignore him. They don't help him. And the third person stops. Now, the third is this unlikely mold-breaking Samaritan. And that's the punchline of the parable. But who are these first two guys who ignore the man in need? A priest and a Levite, right? Those are the two guys who cross the road and won't help. A priest and a Levite. Jesus is making up this story. It didn't actually happen. He could have made these guys anything. He could have made them a carpenter and a tax collector, a Roman and a poor beggar, right? But he chooses a priest and a Levite. These are people who work in the temple. They work in the religious courts. They study the scriptures. And you know, their job is to help people. We have to assume that's what they're on their way to do. They weren't hurrying past the guy in need because they were going to rob a convenience store or do something bad. They weren't hurrying off to go sin somewhere. We have to assume they were heading to the temple or some religious activity, something objectively good. Who are the villains in the story Jesus makes up who don't have time for compassion? People who are convinced they're already doing something good. 
People so assured of their own holiness, they've become deaf to divine interruption. People with such a clear picture of good deeds that their holy imaginations are drained down into a black and white checklist instead of a mold-breaking throne room of living color. And immediately after this story of the Good Samaritan, Luke gives us the second act of the same play. Another person who's too busy and in too much of a hurry to do good deeds and, and they can't have an encounter with God. Martha. This is not a story, as it turns out, about good versus bad. It's a story about good versus better. Right? The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That doesn't mean it's bad to work. Work is good. It just means sometimes there's something better. Rest. The Good Samaritan, it's not a story that it's bad to hurry to serve God in a temple. It means it's better to serve God everywhere, even places we don't expect. Sometimes good versus better is so much harder than good versus bad, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say, Martha, Martha, you're doing so many preparations and that was evil. Stop trying to serve, that's wrong. He just says, Mary chose what was better. She's listening. This stubborn story about these sisters is crystal clear that doing a good deed can be wrong if it distracts you from the voice of Jesus. Right? If only Martha had been in the next room sinning instead of helping, right? If she was next door cheating on her taxes or something, like this would be easy. It'd be so simple, right? But she's serving Jesus and his friends. She's practicing a Christian virtue he commanded. Hospitality, generosity, service. Picture this scene, okay? Put yourself in her shoes here. Martha invited Jesus over. She put the burden of hospitality on herself. She invited him, and we don't know how many of his friends, maybe the 12, maybe more than that. Jesus always traveled with a crowd. They're in her home, and we can only assume she's preparing food for them. She's cleaning up after them. She's managing the crowd that's coming once they hear Jesus is there. She's making introductions. She's answering questions. She's moving furniture around to make more space. She's trying to help. And the whole time, there's little sister Mary, goody two-shoes Mary, crisscross applesauce in the front row, staring up at Jesus, soaking up every word, and finally Martha snaps. She's strategic about it. Did you notice she doesn't sneak in, kind of ducking down in the front row to whisper to Mary, hey, you need, come help me, I need, I need some help. Now she interrupts the whole production. She marches right to the front and halts the sermon in its tracks, right? Her interruption becomes the scene. Luke doesn't even tell us what Jesus was saying, what Jesus was talking about. Her interruption steals the show. One track, Martha marches in and cuts off the son of God mid-sentence. She starts with his appeal to empathy, uh, maybe trying to invoke all of his commands to serve others. She's like, Lord, don't you care that my little sister is leaving me to do all the serving by myself? You tell us to serve. Then she tries to boss the son of God around. Tell her to help me. Imagine, right? Every eye in the room must have been locked on her. What is she doing? And then shifted to Jesus. What's he going to say? And Jesus' rebuke must have cut Martha to the marrow. He says, Martha, Martha. You're anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Not by you, not by me, not by anybody. Martha gets humiliated in front of all of her guests, in front of everyone, and her own kid sister. But she's the one who chose the terrain for this battle at her own risk. If you put Jesus on the spot with an audience, you are going to turn into an object lesson, right? She just learned that. Jesus says, look, I see you, Martha. 
all your anxiety, all your indignation. I can tell how deeply you want to help and earn your way. I can tell all the tactics you've tried, all the justifications you've juggled. You don't have to do a lot. You're anxious and troubled about many things, but you only have to do one thing. Only one thing is needed. Mary knows what it is, and nobody's going to take it from her. Not you, not me, not the cleaning, not the chores. Nothing is going to take that away. Martha asks about all the serving she has to do alone. She brings him this long, long, long checklist, and he says, there's only one thing on your list. You don't even know what it is. In the Hall of Fame of brilliant Jesus one-liners, right, this one is in the top for me, right? It's right up there with give to Caesar what's Caesar's, or whoever's without sin cast the first stone. Jesus has this way where he just diffuses an argument and then wins it at the same time and just mic drop, right? This is one of those. He just says, you, you bring me this long checklist, there's only one thing on it. You don't even know what it is. Lighten your load. How long is your to-do list, by the way? Let me ask it this way. How many tasks are weighing you down when you hit the pillow at night and try to pray? Or when you find a minute for your quiet time, but you can't quit fretting about your schedule? Or when you're sitting in church, trying to listen, trying to worship or pray or fellowship, and you're thinking about your grades, your boss, your budget, your vacation, your employees, your reputation, your ministry, your family, the fact that you have 874,311 things to do and you're running out of time to do it all. Jesus walks in. He erases your list and corrects that number. One thing. You're so stressed out, but you only have one thing you have to do. How does that make you feel to hear him say that? He says, the problem's not that one sister is working and one sister's not. It's that one sister is divided and the other is singular. One is scattering herself to the wind and the other is unifying herself on the rock. One is straining for things she will lose while the other is accepting what can never be taken away. One is talking, bustling, working, stressing, blustering, interrupting. The other is listening. The all-powerful creator of the universe spent one-seventh of his creative effort doing absolutely nothing, taking a break. Not because he was tired from his labor or weak from exhaustion. He was setting an example because he knew that would be really hard for you and for me. Imagine what you could create in your life if you decided to trust him and imitate that ratio. <laughs> no way. I can't do it. I can't do it. Even as I say that, it sounds impossible. I don't have time, right? Is that what you're thinking? That's what I'm thinking when I hear that. I start scrolling through my to-do list in my head. I've got a job. I've got kids to raise and grandkids to appreciate. I've got a marriage to enjoy and trips to plan. I've got a budget to balance, and the whole time my phone keeps buzzing. I'm trying to lose 10 pounds and learn guitar and fix that leaky gutter. I don't have time. I just invited the Son of God and all of his friends over to my house for dinner, and I have nothing ready to eat. I don't even have any groceries. The house is a wreck. The couch is covered in laundry, and there's dishes in the sink. I have nothing to wear. You want me to do what? Sit still and listen to God over the endless cacophony of this hurting, busy, nonstop, chaotic mess of a world. Let me tell you the truth at the heart of this story, the truth that Mary knew and Martha only thought she knew. You are running out of time. You're running out of time. 
Not Martha running out of time to get the casserole in the oven and the baseboard scrubbed. You're Mary running out of time to soak up every last word from the Son of God during your short time here on earth. You're running out of time. Not to check things off your to-do list, but time to encounter the living God here on earth. Not time to finish everything you need in your lifelong bucket list, but time to do the one thing that Jesus said is really needed in this life. To listen. I feel like I'm running out of time in my day-to-day with all my tasks, but how desperate should I feel if my head hits the pillow and my ears have been deaf for an entire day to the ever-present voice of God? How stressed out should I feel if I haven't heard God's voice in weeks out of this tiny, short little life that I get to live? Look, I don't care if you're a CEO or a stay-at-home mom or everything in between. All of us have a schedule that consists of only one task. And all of us are running out of time at the rate of 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours per day, 365 days per year, non-negotiable. Now, Mary could literally sit at Jesus's literal feet and listen to Jesus's literal words. We don't have that luxury, right? We don't have him here in the flesh. So how are we supposed to listen to God? What does that even mean? Okay, I hear this. I hear you saying, listen to God. What does that even mean? The Bible, first of all, is clear about one thing. God is always speaking. He's always speaking. He never stops speaking. Job 33 says, for God speaks in one way and another, though man does not perceive it, right? God speaks every language, English and everything else, languages that only your heart can comprehend. He speaks through art. He speaks through nature. He speaks through community. He speaks through his word. He speaks here in this church in every silence. The only time you can't hear him is when you're being loud, right? Habakkuk 2 says, for the Lord is in his holy temple. What should we do? Let all the earth keep silent before him. Listen, when God seems quiet or silent or uncaring, it's not because he's not talking. It's not because he's distant. It's because you are. Asking how to listen to God is really just asking what it takes to be present, which in our world means asking how to slow down and be quiet. We're not like Mary. We don't have literal flesh and blood Jesus in the next room that we could be listening to, but we have something else. We have something Mary never got that she would have been so thrilled to get her hands on. We have the word of God written down, right? We don't have to, we don't have to skip out on good things to go listen to him in the next room. We have it with us in our pockets 24-7, and we can open it and read it anytime we want to. You don't have to come to church to hear me read it. You can read it anywhere, anytime. It's not that only certain people are allowed to read it. You can read it. You can pick it up. It's yours. He gave it to you. Mary was so desperate to soak up every second that she had with Jesus, and we carry around all of his recorded words with us all the time. If you think he's not showing up, if you think he's not speaking, that he's not answering your questions, are you reading this? Have you read what he said? Someone you hear this, you might roll your eyes. You might think, okay, read the Bible. Big one. I've read it. Okay, now what? I'm too busy. I don't have time. It's not really my thing. You might hear read the Bible, and honestly, you might think something like this. Okay, the Bible, it's old, all right? It's full of strange words, worn-out stories I've heard a thousand times, awkward cultural things that don't make sense today. The Bible feels like it has controversy and confusion lurking like landmines underneath every passage, and I'm scared to pick it up. You might feel like me, with my creation story conundrum, holding an armload of ancient scrolls so fragile that I need to handle it with gloves, lest it erupt into dust and Christianity fall to pieces on my watch. I think that when God's word feels like that, 
when it feels tired and worn out and fragile, it's because we're trying to read it like Martha, not like Mary. What a colossal gift, this strange and infinite library. And we try to read it in a hurry. We try to read it in between things. We try to listen to it on double speed so we can get to the next thing faster. The Bible goes on forever in every direction. You can study it any way you want. There are shelves of books written over centuries by brilliant people across cultures on every subject and controversy about the Bible that you can imagine. There are commentaries, podcasts, translation guides, and more and more voices joining the conversation every day, and we read it too fast. Read it slow. Slow down so you think you're reading too slow and then read a little bit slower. Savor it and let it confuse you and drop you down rabbit trails and goose chases and through coffee shop conversations and commentary quests and sermon sifting. Take it slower. Here's what I've learned. You will never ask a question that nobody's asked before. It's not going to fall apart on your watch. Maybe your question doesn't have an answer, and we'll only learn it when we're with God someday, and for now we can just worship the mystery. But maybe your question about Genesis is answered in Exodus. Maybe your problem with the story of Mary and Martha, if you could slow down and sit with the story, is really just a window into your own spiritual workaholism and pathological busyness, and you didn't like it because it was shining a spotlight on the altars you've set up in your own soul. And sitting with this story could reveal your own problem, but you won't be quiet and listen. We're all running out of time, and we all only have one task. Like Mary, let's sit with these words, let's savor every moment we can, and let's refuse to let life drown him out. That's Mary. Let's end by talking about Martha, though. There's a little bit of Mary and Martha in all of us, okay? So that's her. Let's talk about Martha. What about her? Maybe you're bristling like I did at this story. You're like, look, that's great. We all want to read the Bible more. We all want to sit at Jesus' feet more, but somebody has to do the laundry. Somebody has to do the dishes. Somebody's got to do some work around here. It'll never get done. I can't just pray and read the Bible all day. I've got a life to live, and God calls me to work and do those other good things too. Maybe you're the priest or the Levite in a hurry to the temple, and nobody needs you on the side of the road. You're just doing your job. Jesus didn't say not to do those things. In fact, he commands us to excel at our work and to take time to help the needy to be interrupted at every turn when we need to be. But he also says that our to-do lists are only one item long. So here's what that means. It means that you can wash the dishes, you can mow the lawn, you can drop off the kids at practice and sit in algebra class, and you can do that while you're listening to God. You can do your chores, you can bustle with hospitality and excel at your job while you are listening to God's voice that's always speaking. Martha says, but I can't listen because I have to serve all these people as if those are mutually exclusive, but they're not. It's not incompatible with listening to God. He's always speaking. You can tune into his voice anywhere at any time. And the different places you are, the different things that you're doing in your life will lend different flavors and colors to the voice of God in the midst of your to-do list. Isn't that good news? Only one thing is needed, and you can do it anytime, anywhere, while you're taking care of everything else you have to do. If you're like me, most days at some point you feel like you're in a race against a clock and you're losing. And you are, but not for the things you might think. Why does your life have to be as busy as it is right now? Sure, success takes hard work, hard work takes time, but imagine this with me, okay? Imagine a nightmare, a worst case scenario. What if you wake up at the end of your life and all you did with your whole life, when you look back, 
was work hard and get good grades and get into a good school, get your dream job, get married and have kids, go on cool trips and retire comfortably. Oh, imagine. What if that's all you managed to accomplish with your one precious little life? We're told that's a dream life, of course, but as Christians, we know better. What if you check every box on the successful life bingo card and you never hear the voice of God? It's a failure. It's a tragedy. Let's be people who don't let a day go by without checking off the one thing on our to-do list. In a world of distraction, let us be a people of devotion. In a world of loudness, let us be a people who listen. Let's fearlessly study God's word in the written scripture mystery and constantly listen for that voice in everything we do.